You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. Great philosopher Alfred North Whitehead once claimed that while Buddhism was a metaphysic searching for a religion, Christianity was a religion searching for a metaphysic. And indeed, throughout the 2,000-year history of the Church, Christian thinkers have borrowed heavily from many metaphysical systems that originated outside of Christianity, most notably the ancient Greek metaphysical systems of Aristotelianism and Platonism, but there have been many others. Thinkers such as Augustine, Aquinas, Anselm, and many others, even those whose names don't start with the letter A, have sought to understand the revelation of God in Christ, largely using the language and methods of these originally pagan metaphysical systems. In more recent times, modernism, process thought, and various Eastern metaphysical systems have influenced large segments of contemporary Christianity, especially in the West. What are we to make of this? Is it true that Christianity lacks metaphysical underpinnings, such that it must always be snatching what it can from those around it to maintain its balance in the shifting sands of culture? Or does Christianity actually have its own coherent metaphysical system, implicit in the biblical message, even if not always obvious, not always front and center, or indeed not even the fundamental purpose of said message? In his latest book, The Essentials of Christian Thought, Roger Olson argues strenuously for the latter, claiming that Christianity can stand on its own two metaphysical feet. My name is Dan Dawson, co-host of the Book of Nature podcast here on the Christian Humanist Radio Network, and I'll be your host for today's episode of Christian Humanist Profiles. I'm pleased to welcome Roger to the program. Welcome, Roger. Uh, thank you. Good to be with you. All right. Well, let's let's get right into it. Let's start with a couple general questions. First, uh, tell us a, a bit about yourself and, and what led you to write this book. So I have a blog. I blog at patheos.com, and the blog is simply Roger Eels. And, um, a couple of years ago, I'm not sure when exactly, I was blogging about the project that we in Christian higher education know as integration of faith and learning. And I was complaining that after all these years, in Christian higher education, teaching 36 years now, I think, in three Christian universities, I have rarely heard that project explained in a way that isn't almost guaranteed to create conflict and controversy. And um, I sat through numerous workshops and occasionally had an opportunity to speak as part of one, but usually just as a part of the faculty, so the audience and someone else teaching what integration of faith and learning means. So for those of your listeners who don't know, um, most Christian universities, those that are more than just church-related, so most of these would call themselves evangelical, although some would be Catholic, I suppose, talk about the importance of integrating Christian faith with the disciplines being taught in the university. That's the reason for their existence. That's why Christian universities and colleges traditionally exist. And Mm. I'm speaking mostly there of liberal arts colleges and universities of arts and sciences more than Bible colleges. Okay. So they talk a great deal, or did in the past, of integration of faith and learning, or just faith learning integration. But I was dismayed because... So many of my colleagues seemed confused about it, and I was on my blog trying to explain what I think that project really entails, uh, what it means, how, how it's done and not done properly. And so I was contacted by a publisher, the publisher of this book, Zondervan, or Harper Collins is the parent organization of that, and asked to write a book about integration of faith and learning. And as we talked Eventually, uh, the idea evolved to where the explicit discussion of faith learning integration would be an appendix to the book, and the book itself would be about the faith part of faith learning integration, because that's my major complaint, is it's very rarely well explained what that means when we talk about faith learning integration. What is the faith part Learning is fairly clear. It means all the disciplines mm-hmm. in the university. But, but what do we mean by the faith part? 
Sure. And that can be anything from subjective feelings. You know, I love Jesus. How do I integrate that with, uh, let's say, sociology? Okay. But that's not what I think the faith part means. I've always understood the faith of faith learning integration to refer to the Christian worldview. Although my publisher asked me to try to avoid that word since it's been so overused. Oh, okay. So I chose uh, metaphysics instead because I think that's really what's at the heart of the Christian worldview is what philosophers would refer to as a metaphysical vision mm -hmm. about reality. So that's what the book is about. And my original title for the book was Narrative Biblical Metaphysics. But, of course, I, the publisher said no. I like that one. Yeah. I do, too. Yeah. But they said it wouldn't sell. So I <laughs> guess they know better than I do. So that's how the book came into existence. Now, when I decided to actually write it, sat down to do the research and began writing, my mind kept going back to a professor of philosophy of religion that I had in my doctoral studies many years ago named John Newport, to whom I dedicated this book. And John Newport kept talking then, he's deceased now, but back then when I was his student, he kept talking about biblical metaphysics, which he said was considered an oxymoron by many people. And uh, that piqued my interest, and ever since I've been looking for you know, more information about that, more insight about that, and I remembered two particular scholars that he mentioned in that connection. One was Claude Trematon, who I mentioned in the book yeah. very prominently, a French uh, philosopher and theologian who was a disciple of Pierre, uh, I'm sorry, Pierre Teilhard de Chardin, mm -hmm. the, the Catholic theologian and metaphysician and scientist. And then a Protestant, um, Edmund de la Cherbonnet, who is an American, sounds French, but American, Okay, And uh, is still alive, as far as I know, in his late 90s. And uh, both of them wrote books on, on biblical metaphysics or Christian metaphysics. And I went back, got those books and articles. They're out of print now, but reread them and, and decided to write a book kind of along the same lines, using them as guides. But also other people. I draw on theologians such as Emil Brunner and the Jewish philosopher Abraham Joshua Heschel and several others. Oh, very good, very good. So um, you you mentioned Alfred North Whitehead in the book, so this is just a follow-up to that. So um, when, you're, uh, when your professor said that uh, a lot of people consider uh, biblical, the idea of biblical metaphysics um, an oxymoron, do you think it's because of his, uh, his influence, or is there something deeper there? Is it, is it a, a bigger, more... Uh, prevalent influence than just this one philosopher. Yeah, so Alfred North Whitehead, I think, simply expressed what most modern philosophers think about the Bible and Christianity, that it's devoid of any unified metaphysical vision or perspective, and that's why it's always had to draw on Platonism or Neoplatonism, in the case of some of the later church fathers, uh, Aristotelianism in the case especially of Thomas Aquinas and others, nominalism in the, in the later Middle Ages, and process thought for him. I mean, mm -hmm. Alfred North Whitehead, Whitehead thought he was contributing the needed uh, metaphysic for Christianity, which oh. is process thought. Well, that's interesting. I didn't know that. All right. Well, um, moving on. So the meat of your book is in describing these various extra-biblical metaphysical systems and how they compare and contrast with your idea of what constitutes a distinct Christian metaphysic. Uh, yet you were quick to point out that Christian thought still has much to learn from these other worldviews. So in very broad terms, could you describe the contours of this distinctive Christian metaphysic? Yeah. And to what extent do these other medical metaphysical systems, say, take Platonism as an, as an example or whatever you want, have much good to offer Christianity, and to what extent do they chafe against it? Yes. Well, that's a huge question. And of course, uh, yeah, take it piece by piece if you want. Yeah. <laughs> so I don't want people to not read my book because I told everything about it, but I'll, I'll whet their appetite with partial answers to those questions anyway. And so let's start with what is at the core of the, of the biblical 
metaphysical vision. And I think as a whole, and I don't mean every individual author of every piece of the Bible, but as a whole, so I'm talking about a consensus here, the biblical writers viewed ultimate reality, the, the reality that is the ultimate cause behind the appearances of things, and that's what metaphysics looks for, uh, is a supernatural that is above nature, not part of nature, though possibly within nature, in a sense, God is imminent, but above nature, personal being. Now, people might hear that and say, oh, well, you know, of course, other worldviews believe that too. Mm. Yes, yes, but, um, you know, that's not something that was taken for granted by many metaphysical systems, and especially the personal part of that. And so when I talk mm -hmm. about ultimate reality being personal, I mean the biblical writers talk about personality as the pinnacle of reality. And this ultimate reality is a creator God who is very personal. And by that, I mean that they meant has thoughts, will, um, can reflect and relate. And all of those things are not taken for granted in most rationalistic metaphysical systems of philosophy. Okay, so um, so this um, I've heard this sort of view sometimes um, being being called uh, is it uh, is it biblical personhood or theistic 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 personhood is that is that the what you're describing here? Biblical personalism is what um, Emil Brunner, the Swiss theologian, called it. And he drew heavily on Martin Buber, the Jewish philosopher. And uh, others have called it theistic personalism or personalistic theism. And those are just extra biblical terms for the biblical worldview. Now, there are points of congeniality between that and, say, middle Platonism, which was the prevailing philosophy of the Roman Empire in the time of Jesus and the Apostles. And so naturally enough, the early church fathers in the second century attempting to explain Christianity to uh, the pagan world latched on to Middle Platonism, just as Philo, the Jewish philosopher and biblical scholar did at the time of Jesus. And so, um, you know, you do see aspects of overlap and interplay between the biblical worldview and and philosophies like Middle Platonism, they're not entirely different. And so my claim is not that biblical personalism is, uh, you know, kind of st standalone, separate, totally different from every other mm. philosophy or metaphysical system. But I don't think that it borrows from them. Okay. I don't think it's dependent on them. Okay. Yeah, that's helpful. So... Um... You also talk a little bit more in your book about uh, some other views, uh, namely this idea of God being uh, some being itself, and you have a lot of criticism uh, mm. of that particular viewpoint, um, although I gather that it's a pretty uh, common and pretty, uh, um, pretty popular through a good chunk of the history of the church. So do you speak a little bit more to that? Yeah, so... Throughout Christian history, some Christian philosophers and theologians have found it helpful, if not necessary, to pay metaphysical compliments to God, is the way I like to put it. And that is um, beginning with a kind of preconceived notion of what ultimate reality must be in order to be truly ultimate, then God must be blank, be it being itself not a being, uh -huh. because to be a being would be to be finite and therefore could not be the cause of everything else. And God, by definition, must be the ultimate reality, the all-determining reality. So do you see how I'm, I'm unpacking this in the sense of presuppositions? Sure. So this is drawn largely, I believe, from Middle Platonism, and from Aristotelianism mm -hmm. in all their varieties. And of course, every Middle Platonist philosopher was a little different from every other one, and I talk about some of them in the book. Mm -hmm. But they all agreed that, 
that that for God to really be God or for ultimate reality to be really ultimate reality, he or it must be really different from everything finite that's limited in some way. So he must be unlimited in every sense of the word. But that puts God beyond personhood. In my, in my opinion, that makes God um, unrelatable. Mm. So I don't think that's what the biblical authors thought. I think that at that point of calling God being itself, or as uh, Anselm in the Middle Ages said, God is the being greater than which none can be conceived. Oh, yes, the ontological argument. Yeah. yeah. And Aquinas, drawing on Aristotle, talked about God as actus purus, that is pure actuality with no potentiality. Mm. All of these are metaphysical compliments being paid to God from philosophy, but by Christians, in order to make Christianity respectable intellectually uh, to pagans, and then, of course, in the modern world, to secular people. What I'm trying to do is roll that back and say we don't have to do all of that. Let, in fact, let's not pay metaphysical compliments to God that the Bible doesn't, and that even that often even undermine the biblical portrayal of God. And so what happens is when you when they do this, they end up saying um, in, in different ways. So I'm not trying to brush too broadly here. I'll admit there are many different ways of saying it, but they say that whenever the Bible talks about God being affected by us and having emotions because of what people do oh well that's anthropomorphism mm. in other words don't take it literally because god being the being greater than which none can be conceived obviously can't be affected by anything outside himself anselm said so then i'm saying well what about hosea in the old testament the whole book is about how god is grieved by people's idolatry Right. And, and my question is, what's the point of the book, mm -hmm. if that's not the point of the book? If he's not really being grieved, you know, yes. what's really going on. Sure, I understand. So, so the metaphysic of the Bible, to me, is a very personal, passionate, ultimate reality that is the true person, and we are dim reflections or copies of that true person. Okay. He's the true person. We're not. So is, Except that we're created in his image, of course. So just to, just to keep on this point just a little bit longer, because I think this is a really interesting one. Um, so do you think there's any point of common ground with this uh, sort of uh, is Anselmian or, or Aquinas type view of, of, is there some way that you can rehabilitate that idea of God as being some kind of like, if not being itself, but just some, like I think you said it right there, just being the the true person there is there some point where the, where we can where we can almost say maybe we're saying some of the same things just saying it differently uh, mm -hmm. does that make sense what i'm asking yeah and that's difficult to discern sometimes because i think most of the christian philosophers that i've been talking about were n never entirely consistent because they would be writing and realizing at some point that they were going beyond some boundary into something other than real biblical Christianity. So they back up and say something that was really inconsistent with what they said some pages before. Let me give you an example of that. The theologian, 20th century theologian, um, Paul Tillich, who strove mightily to <laughs> de-anthropomorphize God, to make God being itself the ground of being. He called God both of those things. Um, truly infinite and not human-like. In other words, not just a big man in the sky. So that was his concern, was to get away from folk religion, which, in, to his mind, Christianity was riddled with folk religion, which tends to picture God as just a big man upstairs or something like that. And so in the process, mm -hmm. he tried to you know, take away from our idea of God, which he said we can't really picture God, but our idea of God, everything finite, everything improper for God to be God, the ground of being. But then he would turn right around a few pages later and say something completely inconsistent with that. So he, he tied himself in the knot. Mm. I explained that in my book. Um, 
The Journey of Modern Theology, where I have a chapter on Paul Tillich and point out the ways in which he was not very consistent uh, with this. So he ended up calling God super personal, the ground of everything personal, but not personal himself, but, and yet uh, including personhood in himself, etc., etc., etc. And at the end, mm. your head is spinning. You just don't know what he's even saying. Sure. So I think, yes, I mean, th there are points of congeniality in all of these philosophers and theologians, but we have to be careful. Mm -hmm. That's the main point of my book is let's be careful not to buy into a metaph metaphysical system that ultimately, when pushed to its logical conclusion, depersonalizes God makes God not someone we can really relate to or have any effect on. And maybe this is the real point, is that all philosophies, all extra-biblical philosophies end up, well, let's say before process thought with a Alfred North Whitehead, they all end up making it such that God cannot really be affected by us. We can't have any effect on God. Mm. Okay, he, He's impermeable to us. Uh, he affects us, but we can't affect him because he's so great. And I think the biblical authors all thought we could affect God because he allows it to happen. Oh, very good, very good. So as a follow-up, uh, one thing um, that kept coming to my mind as I read your book uh, was the backdrop of the Bible as being written over many centuries by many different human authors in many different cultural and philosophical contexts. And yet, as we as Christians affirm, all inspired by the same Holy Spirit. Uh, thus, weren't the Bible authors themselves influenced by the various metaphysical systems surrounding them at the time they were writing? And how would you respond to some hypothetical objection that the Bible actually contains many metaphysical systems that at least apparently don't always seem to agree with each other in all particulars. Okay, well, um, I would respond by asking for an example. Oh, wow. <laughs> Putting me on the spot here. Uh, well, uh, it's maybe not so much about the nature of God uh, as much as, say, the nature of salvation would be um, where, uh, you know, Paul's talking about salvation by grace through uh, faith alone, and then you have James talking about, well, um, show me a, man, uh, a faith without works, and I'll, I'll show you. I'm, I'm totally mangling it, but I think you get the, <laughs> you get what I'm you get what I'm saying. James had uh, the book of James had some uh, uh, emphasis on works as being a sign of uh, true faith, and Paul was more emphasizing the grace. Now, I'm not, not saying that's an actual contradiction by any stretch. But it does seem like there's some different emphases going on here, different viewpoints going on. Maybe not the best example you were looking for, but... Uh, right. In but, fact, I don't think that's an example of what you were asking. No, no, it's not. <laughs> um, boy. And of course, that's a problem that's been worked on ever since Luther, at least. And Luther handled it by saying that James was an epistle of straw and uh, right. leaving it in the canon, but not really liking it very much. But I think most... Protestants, anyway, would say there's no real conflict there because what James says is that faith without works is dead. Right. He doesn't say we're we're saved by works. I guess what I'm trying to get at is that it's not so much that particular example, just that there there are different authors that are writing um, over different periods that have somewhat maybe not. They, they could have ideas that are obviously congruent, we, we affirm yeah. that, but they, they have different emphases, maybe different aspects of, of, of their metaphysical uh, outlook that affect them. Um, maybe another would, example would be um, the, uh, the creation accounts um, being very similar to, this is probably a more pertinent example, being very similar to some of uh, the other ancient uh, Near East um, uh, uh, creation stories such as like the the Enuma Elish and the and the uh, Epic of Gilgamesh for the uh, uh, Genesis creation account and the flood accounts respectively. So maybe that's a little bit more relevant to what right. I'm asking here. All right. Well, this could lead into an endless discussion. Um, C.S. Lewis, for example, I'll just begin with C.S. Lewis and say I think he handled this the right way, and he simply said that there that the other many of the other worldviews and metaphysical systems of, of the world in history 
are beautiful myths and that um, they reflect truth but in a distorted way mm. uh, but but here let me just put it this let me put my view this way if magically we could get all the authors of the bible together in a in a room it'd be a big room and present my vision of the biblical metaphysic that i express in this book to them mm -hmm. and ask them to vote they would all say yes that's what we meant okay now they may disagree among themselves about details here and there but I don't find anywhere in the Bible that any biblical author is actually expressing an entirely different metaphysical vision than this one that I express in the book. Biblical personalism. Sure, sure. No, that, that's, that's, a, that's, that's a very helpful um, explanation there. Uh, so, so moving on a bit here. Um, as a scientist myself, so I, I'm a... I'm a professor in a uh, in a uh, R1 uh, institution, Purdue University. But I was uh, very much interested in your interlude discussing the alleged modern war between science and religion. So this is a topic that's actually come up on a number of occasions in the Book of Nature podcast that I co-host. Um, so could you lay out your main thesis here on the proper relationship between Christian metaphysics and the natural sciences? How in your view, should a scientist who's a Christian, uh, not a Christian scientist, that name's taken, unfortunately, <laughs> um, uh, how, how would they properly, should properly orient their scientific career with their identity, identity in Christ and all that entails? Yeah. So it seems to me that the problem here um, has to do with the difference between, say, a Christian university, which exists because in our separation of church and state society and our increasingly secular society, many colleges and universities um, simply don't allow uh, religion and faith, faith and uh, disciplines to be integrated in any kind of explicit way. So we founded Christian universities uh, in order to be able to do that. So how would a person who is both a Christian and a scientist in such a secular university, I went to one too for, for my PhD, and a, um, you know, how, how would that person like you or some of the people I knew as Christians at Rice University when I was a PhD student there um, go about integrating their Christian faith uh, with their scientific studies, research, and teaching. And I would say very cautiously, um, even subversively, perhaps. I can say that. You can't say that, but I can <laughs> say that. So I'm not saying, I'm not putting those words in your mouth. Those are my words. <laughs> no okay? problem. No problem. But I knew professors at Rice University when I was a student there who were Christians. And I know some in, in other R1 universities who are Christians who do this, and they do it very cautiously and subversively by, um, you know, not praying in class. They wouldn't be allowed to do that or something, and that's not what faith learning integration means anyway. But by pointing out the problems in some of the purely secular philosophies that infiltrate the sciences— and I think the biggest problem here is the common confusion between naturalism, which is a philosophy, and science, which is a method. Okay, now, could you um, no. unpack that a little bit more? So a scientist, whether in a Christian university or, or a secular university or any other kind of university, in the modern world anyway, must practice methodological naturalism, meaning when conducting his or her research, he or she must assume a harmony of the universe, a closed network of causes and effects. But that does not mean that that's really all there is. That okay. is, 
that does not require methodological naturalism, does not require metaphysical naturalism. Sure. It simply means that when you're doing your research, you don't uh, in interject into it the supernatural. It was like that famous uh, cartoon where there's a professor writing something on the board, some equations, and then he has a gap and says, then a miracle happens. And then the yeah. answer, it's like, I think you need to be more explicit in the step two there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But, but the problem arises very often in secular education. And I encountered this in high school and then later uh, maybe at Rice University. I can't think of an example because I was in the religious studies department, but I heard it from Christian students at Rice University where, um, well, let me, just, let me just use one of my biology teachers as an example. When I was a high school student, one of my two biology teachers would, would frequently slip into philosophy while claiming to be talking about science. In other words, he would say things about there are no miracles. Mm. Miracles are impossible. Mm. Well, my hand would shoot up because even in high school, I knew better than that. Sure. I knew that was none of his business to say. He was, he was saying that not as a scientist, because that's not a scientist's business to say there are no miracles. He was speaking then as, as an agnostic philosopher or as a non-supernaturalist person. In other words, he was sneaking philosophy into science. Right. And that's where the conflict comes in. Or, on the other hand, it come, can come in when um, biblical scholars and theologians attempt to make claims about science that are unjustified. In other words, they fly in the face of all the evidence. Um, and so, you know, both sides have to be careful not to transgress that boundary between them, but that it gets transgressed all the time by people on both sides. Sure, yeah, I think I've a I, number of um, examples, many times of people I'm talking to, um, scientists who will basically trot out philosophical assumptions as if they're they're they are you know findings of science and uh, yeah I, I I'm with you 100 percent on that uh, um, definitely there needs to be a better um, separation of that so is that something I guess I guess what what bugs me is that if I find it or not bugs me is not the word but um, what frustrates me a lot of times is is how I um, can convey that separation that you're talking about between philosophy and science to somebody who maybe hasn't really thought through, um, maybe a scientist who really hasn't thought through the philosophical implications or doesn't have a good grasp of what's the difference between philosophy and science. How 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 would I, you know, go about, you know, discuss, having a discussion with them about that? I, that's one of the things that I struggle with as, as a scientist, as a, and uh, a Christian scientist who's, uh, you know, surrounded by um, scientists who aren't believers, pretty much every day. So I would ask that person, what indubitable scientific fact proves that miracles cannot happen? Hmm. Right, right. There is none. Right. It's basically, um, and I think I think if you push people, they'll they'll admit that. But I think yeah. a lot of times, I guess what I'm getting at a lot of times is that, and and I think this is true of of believers too. Don't separate, you know, certain philosophical assumptions from from the scientific uh, the question that's being asked. So. Yeah, so what I try to do in the book, so you give them my book to read and um, point out certain passages in it, but it's also in the footnotes. Uh, mm -hmm. A great recent book on this, and many have been written, but the best recent one is by Alvin Plantinga, and it's it, the title is Where the Conflict Really Lies, mm. and it's uh, his Gifford Lectures, uh, the most prestigious theological lecture series in the, in the world. And he very clearly delineates um, the difference between naturalism and natural science. 
Okay, so um, I guess another question that kind of pops up here is it sounds a little bit like you're talking about uh, the whole uh, non-overlapping magisteria um, idea that uh, Stephen Jay Gold uh, championed. Is 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 that what you're? Is that would you agree with that particular characterization, or is this something different? Well, I think it depends on the context. Uh, in, a, in, a, in an explicitly Christian university, there is a magisterium, and depending on what kind of Christian university it is, it, it might be the Pope, if it's a canonical Catholic university, for example, or you know, the, the magisterium being the sort of implicit understanding of the world, of the Catholic Church, but of course the Pope embodies that and expresses that, but in most Christian uh, liberal arts colleges and universities of arts and sciences, the magisterium is the mission statement and its, its historical interpretation and that the purpose of the university is to integrate Christian faith with all of the disciplines and so forth. So there is there, there lies in there a magisterium where nothing taught in the university should explicitly contradict mm-hmm. uh, basic Christian metaphysics. That's why I wrote the book, is to say, and what is basic Christian metaphysics? Here yeah. it is. Okay? And so in a secular university, um, there, there's where different magisteria pop up that you, you kind of have to discern the context. What is it exactly here in this secular university? And I went to Rice University, and I spent four years trying to figure out exactly what that magisteria was. <laughs> it seemed to me to be sort of an implicit secularism that you were supposed to take for granted more faculty than students i mean it wasn't imposed as much on students but on the but but as far as the faculty went as far as i could tell you know there were certain boundaries that illustrated or expressed that magisterium and uh i i think that sometimes in those contexts that magisterium operates exactly as the christian worldview does in a christian university it's something taken for granted, uh, never really questioned, uh, or at least not on a regular basis questioned. And, um, you know, it's just as faith-based in a way as a Christian university's worldview is. Okay. Well, that's interesting. You took that uh, question in a different direction than I was in, uh, thinking, but actually that's a very interesting take. I hadn't thought of it quite that way before as, as there being this sort of magisteria there. Um, I agree with you well, that I agree with yeah I agree with you well I I just haven't heard it put in the, quite those yeah. terms uh, but I definitely agree with you that there does appear to be this implicit you know secularism that you're sort of supposed to buy into um, on, on a, many uh, uh, secular universities. Uh, Let me give you an illustration of that. Okay, I know our time is limited, but oh, go for it. Re- we have plenty was, of time. Yeah, I was recently watching a fairly new documentary on Netflix called, and I think the title is, I may get a word wrong or something, Einstein's Biggest Blunder. And it's it, it's about the new newer, new, new physics, okay? So it, mm. it's, uh, you know, really cutting edge physics that is beginning to question Einstein's theories of relativity uh, and even things like Heisenberg's principle and, and develop a whole new view of physics and how the universe works. And these two young Turk physicists who are really, you know, well-known, influential. I don't know their names because I'm not a physicist. But anyway, I was impressed with their credentials. are sitting there talking about the Big Bang Theory. And they both teach at a secular university. And um, they're talking about how it, it really does seem now to be inexplicable in natural terms. That there just doesn't seem to be any natural explanation for the beginning of the universe and what came before it, and so forth. And at one point, they both pause, and one says to the other one, you know, maybe at this point we need to talk about God. (laughs) And the other one looks at him and says, "Uh, no, let's not do that. Interesting. I haven't seen that. I might have to check that one out. And my question is, why not? Yeah, no. Why are they not allowed to talk about God? Not necessarily my God. I'm not talking about... Uh, Yahweh God or Jesus Christ, but why not? Why can't a scientist talk about an ultimate cause outside of nature itself? 
And of course, that raises the whole question of intelligent design theory. And I know that's political and very mm. controversial, mm. but it has a long history. It just used to be called the teleological argument for the existence of God. Right, right. The design argument. And, um, you know, what if it is the case that science raises that question but can't answer it itself? Sure. And so, you know, why can't they talk about that and at least raise it as a question, as a possibility? Um, but, you know, my experience is you're not allowed to do that. So, okay. So I like that. I like that because th this is actually kind of where I was going um, with with my original question about – so Stephen Jay Gold um, had this – when I met the non-overlapping magisteria, he – the magisteria – um, he was referring to was the magisterium of science on the one hand and the magisterium of religion on the other. So he started oh, this. Oh, I understood what you meant. Yeah. So um, his, of course, thesis was, as you know, that those should never overlap. Yeah. And um, it's, it sort of sounded a little bit like you were talking about that with your, you know, okay, a scientist should be practicing methodological naturalism, but that's not you know, not this necessarily the same thing as assuming metaphysical naturalism. Um, and so when you're a scientist, you don't interject God into your experiment and um, you don't there also take your scientific explanations and pretend that they are metaphysical statements about ultimate reality. So there's this sort of like you, uh, the scientist doesn't cross over into this territory and the, and the theologian doesn't cross over into that territory and they just kind of stay separate. But then um, and I think that works fine as far as it goes for a lot for the, at least the day to day practice of science and theology. But then you mentioned that, well, maybe science can say something about ultimate reality, or at least raise the question about it, even if it can't itself answer it. Right. So, so maybe I think th what you said there is an interesting take on maybe that's a way out of that sort of conundrum, so to speak, is that this is where the two spheres or magisteria or whatever you want to call them sort of can overlap a bit as they can start raising questions in each yes. other's spheres and say, okay, exactly. now you take care of it. We can't or something like that. Is sure. that, a, is that about right? I'm fine with that. I think that as a, as a scientist in a secular research university, the most you can do is one point out when naturalism as a philosophy is encroaching into science and pretending to be science when it's not. We talked about that earlier. Right. And also show where science itself raises certain questions that science itself can't answer. Very good, very good. And then when the student comes to you after class and says, you know, I'd like to follow that up. What can I read, um, you know, to go further than science can mm. talk about this? Have a list ready. Mm -hmm. as a Christian, and say, well, actually, here's some books you could look at. I don't see how you could be punished for that. No, no. I like to think that, that I wouldn't be. <laughs> yeah, well, no. Yeah, no, I, I don't have any reason to suspect that, uh, at least in my situation. Right. But anyway, um, well, very good, good stuff. Uh, moving on, um, you devote an entire chapter um, to the concept of Christian humanism. So perhaps we're biased here a bit at the Christian Humanist Radio Network, but I think it's great to see theologians such as yourself talking about this, as uh, not enough people are doing so, at least in my opinion. Mm -hmm. um, uh, I agree that Christians have given up way too much ground to the secularists in regard to hum humanism. That's a point you make in your book, in this chapter. And I also think you're right to draw a sharp contrast between these two forms of humanism and point out where naturalistic humanism has infiltrated a great deal of contemporary Christian thought. So as a result, as you say, many Christians now recoil at the very idea of humanism, period. So uh, what are your thoughts as to how we might turn this around and reclaim some of this lost ground? Yeah, so I'm old enough to remember in my own lifetime when this happened, and uh, I don't know if I should name any names or not, but there were a couple of fundamentalist authors back in... I won't tell anyone. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> well, one I'll name, he died recently, Tim LaHaye, wrote some books, 
arguing that secular humanism, which was a term he had picked up from the Humanist Manifesto One and the Humanist Manifesto Two. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Humanist Manifesto One, I think, being written in the 30s. The Humanist Manifesto Two, I think, in the 60s. I'm not sure. I say in the book. Um, and so he was arguing that um, secular humanism is really humanism. I mean, he was equating the two as if there's you know no other humanism than secular humanism. So then he began to just use humanism. And Christians who read him and were influenced by him began to think of all humanism as secular and naturalistic and even anti-Christian. When in fact, anyone who knows Christian history knows that humanism is a term really tied to the Renaissance. Mm -hmm. Uh, At least what's called humanism began in the Renaissance in the 16th century, if not before, in the 15th century in Europe. And one of the leading humanists of that time, in fact, I would call him the father of modern humanism, was Desiderius Erasmus, mm-hmm. who was a priest, one who didn't practice the priesthood. He was a, an independent philosopher, probably best known in Christian circles for having a big debate with Luther over free will. But he really influenced Protestants a great deal, and um, especially those who did believe in free will, such as the Anabaptists, were very much influenced by Erasmus. And um, he was a harsh critic of the Catholic Church of his day, even though he stayed within it. Criticism, which meant uh, that he believed that human beings are created in God's image and likeness, as the Bible says, and therefore are capable of great cultural creativity and that we should do our very best uh, as civilization to enhance and encourage human creativity. Whereas, you know, throughout much of the Middle Ages, the perspective had been otherwise, you know, that, um, you know, humans are not capable of great cultural creativity. And philosophy, especially pagan philosophy, was looked down on and discouraged and so forth. Well, there was this resurgence of ancient Greek and Roman philosophy, and he didn't see that as all bad. He thought that Christians could despoil the Egyptians, as some of the early church fathers talked about using Greek philosophy. And um, so there was this rise of humanism in the Renaissance, um, some of it being very explicitly Christian humanism, such as Erasmus. Mm. And so I argue that from a Christian perspective, we should claim that Christian humanism is the true humanism because only if we are created in God's image and likeness and loved by God can we reasonably claim that humans are above the rest of nature. Otherwise, we're simply, you know, if there is no God, then we're just assigning that great status to ourselves. Interesting. Yeah, I, um, I I really I really like that. Uh, I guess uh, one of the things, if, if, if I'm talking to uh, one of my secular humanist colleagues, um, I don't know if I would necessarily, in the interest of tact, want to lead with this concept. Oh, by the way, Christians are the true humanists. Um, uh, but uh, I definitely agree with that sentiment. Um, I would uh, perhaps look for some... Um, areas of common ground, like, well, we both care about the flourish, flourishing of humanity, we both care about creativity um, uh, and, and, and enhancing uh, human um, creativity and, uh, you know, basically all the qualities that, that make us human, celebrating those. And then... Well, you're talking and, about being tactful, which is fine, but right. the, the real question that has to come out at some point is... Whose metaphysical vision of reality really grounds and supports humanism? Oh, absolutely. And yeah, I guess I would, I would, uh, if I were to ha- have this hypothetical conversation, and I've had, I have had these kind of conversations. Yeah. Um, I'm just speaking sort of hypothetically right now, but I would, I would definitely say, and I believe that you know Christianity offers a better foundation for this sort of. Uh, for for this sort of humanism that we both agree on, then you know naturalism or atheism or what have you, and so I absolutely think that's that's a great way of of uh, 
of framing the the conversation because I think that not only you mentioned Tim, Timothy LaHaye and and how he may have turned off a lot of Christians to humanism, I think there's a lot of uh, secular humanists who really have no idea that there is this even such a thing as this Christian humanism out there and that that it was in fact you know a product of the Renaissance. Never heard of folks like Erasmus, uh, etc. And so this kind of might be a really interesting way of uh, having a good conversation, saying, yeah, yeah, you know, we do have this in common. And, in fact, we, we, we think we have a better way to do it. Mm-hmm. So, no, um, yeah, I was just uh, musing about that a bit. That's, that's great. <clears throat> so when I taught a course on apologetics a few years ago, I invited the president of the state's humanist association, which was secular humanist, to come to my class and have dialogue with us. And this is an example, what what happened was an example of what Emil Brunner calls heuristics. In other words, we were not there to, uh, to attack or assault him or to tell him you're all wrong, uh, but to listen to him and then in dialogue with him to try to show him that there are real problems uh, inconsistencies, if you will, between his secular naturalistic worldview and his claims about the special status of human beings. Mm. Because if we are, as he said, nothing more than products of nature, nature come to consciousness, then so what? <laughs> you know what yeah, I mean? why, why think that, that humans are any any different yeah. or better than anything, any other form of life or even non-life for right. that matter. In fact, I would say follow that logic far enough and you have to end up saying that humanism is just speciesism. It's, it's we assigning this special status to ourselves. Mm. But if uh, some other species had the ability to do it, they would do it mm. for themselves and we wouldn't have any really reason to argue against that. So my argument to him, which was totally new, he had never heard it before, he didn't even know the argument existed, Mm -hmm. is that humans are special in the universe because we're created by God in God's image and likeness and given special powers of cultural creativity uh, that other species don't have. And I mean cultural creativity, not use of tools or something sure, like that. Sure, sure. But the ability to transcend ourselves and our environment given to us by God, which no other species has. Mm-hmm. So I was arguing that, that, that Christian humanism fits the facts better than secular humanism. Mm. And he was just puzzled. I, mean, <laughs> I could see on his face that he had never thought of any of that before and was completely blown away. By, by even learning that there was such a perspective, because his view of Christianity was that, that all Christians are anti-humanistic, that we think all humans are so depraved that they have no good in them at all. Right. And, you know, that salvation is becoming something other than really human, whereas I told him, no, we believe that salvation is becoming truly human by God's grace, yeah, I mean, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, he just didn't know any of that. Very interesting. Somehow we have to educate the people out there. And, and you ask how? Well, I do it through my blog and through my yeah. books and, you know, in any whatever way I can. Well, I try to do it um, through, uh, through the co- podcast that I co-host and uh, at least the best that I can when I'm not doing my day job. <laughs> that's, what we, that's all we can do. Yeah. Well, this is sort of a tangent to that, but... Uh, what you were saying there about uh, the heuristics um, made me remember something else I read in your book uh, about the uh, idea of uh, the of a, of a blick, you know, sort of a worldview, a way of integrating the world and all the facts in it into a certain uh, uh, worldview. And you talk about the Christians have a certain blick, and then you have naturalists have another, um, and you can you can basically come up with a, if you can come up with a self-consistent system in there and say, well, I believe that my blick, you know, my worldview explains the rest of the world the, or the entire universe of the world better 
than your Blick, but I still can respect the fact that you have your own worldview in which you've worked out uh, the things and all the uh, consi- at least be self consistent with it. Internally consistent is the word I'm looking for with that view. Uh, so uh, I, I like that. I think that's a good way of uh, of um, basically I don't know um, having these sorts of conversations respectfully, but not you know giving away our, the metaphysical store, so to speak. Yeah. Yeah. So what I'm trying to do in the epistemological chapters of the book is draw on Wittgenstein and postmodern thought in its best sense um, and show that everyone has a blick. There is, you know, naturalism is a blick just as much as personalistic theism is a blick. And there are points of contact between them that can be grounds for conversation, but it's not like one blick can be proven and all the rest disproven or something like that. It's more, you see reality this way, not that way. But in heuristics, what I do is I try through dialogue to show a person with a different blick the attractiveness of my blick and how maybe it fills in gaps theirs doesn't and get them to try to look at reality uh, through my blick, if, if possible, and see if it doesn't work better than theirs. But it's not a matter of knockdown, drag out proof. One metaphysical system can't be proven. Sure, sure. Well, very good. Well, um, we're getting to the to the end of our time, so I think we should start heading for the towards the door here a bit. So, uh, in the spirit of hospitality, it's our custom at Christian Humanist Profiles to give our guests the final word. So I've been driving this discussion mostly up to this point. So I'd like to hand the reins over to you, Roger. Is there anything that hasn't been said that you'd like to say about your book or anything else? Uh, Any new projects on the horizon? Oh, I always have projects on the horizon. I'm working on a book on the history of Christian ethics, and that'll be fairly long term. Um, I'm now... I have a professorship of ethics, but haven't really written that much on ethics before. I've done mostly historical theology, so now I'm going to blend the two into a history of Christian ethics. But I guess what I want to say is that this book, to me, the title, Essentials of Christian Thought, is a bit misleading and is kind of bland. And Hmm. I think the publisher had the idea, you know, that it would sell better as a textbook with a title like that. But I really think I, I, I would like to ask people to not judge the book by its title, mm. but to really look at its purpose, which is, as you said, somewhere along the line, and maybe something you sent me before that we actually began talking. Um, the last chapter or, or the appendix is about integration of faith and learning, and that's really what the book is for. It's meant as a guide to people who want to think about how to use the Christian worldview as a way of integrating all of life and experience together. Now, there's how does this blick function uh, when I'm, you know, a professor or a student in sociology, for example, or in psychology or some other branch of what's taught in a university or something like that. And what is the Christian faith part and, and my concern is that so often what happens is that people in higher education, Christians in higher education, go about this dualistically and believe one thing in church and something else in their discipline. And the two actually contradict each other often, and they don't try to bring them together. I think our whole task as Christian intellectuals, and I don't mean that in some kind of a superior way. I just mean thinking people. Our whole task as thinking Christians is to attempt to integrate our Christian life and worldview with the rest of reality and knowledge and, and not live dualistically in two separate compartments. Uh, I think that's a great way to end the conversation. 
So, well, I really appreciate you coming on and, and, and telling us about your book. Uh, again, listeners, the book is uh, The Essentials of Christian Thought. You can, uh, it's uh, published by Zondervan, HarperCollins. Uh, Roger Olson uh, has been our uh, uh, interviewee today, and he has a blog. Can you tell us uh, uh, your blog, uh, your, the, yeah. uh, the uh, URL for that, for our listeners? Yes, we- um, Catheos.com. Uh, forward slash blogs, forward slash Roger E. Olson. Excellent. And we'll have that in the, uh, in the show notes as well. We'll have a link to that and also a link to, to the book. Uh, if you want to chime in on anything regarding today's interview, feel free to post a comment in the show notes for this episode at www.christianhumanist.org. Post a comment on our Facebook page, or send an email to thechristianhumanist at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Christian Humanist Profiles is a program on the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our press liaison is Christian Pellegrin. Our audio editor is Britt Stack. Until next time, this is Dan Boston saying, go in grace, go in peace, serve the Lord.